This morning, uh, we're in Philippians chapter 3. We are in a series in Philippians. Um, and Philippians is a book that is full of joy, which is appropriately themed at Christmas. And uh, this morning, we're going to finish chapter 3. And then we're going to be in chapter 4 over the next couple of weeks talking about things like peace and contentment and generosity and other good Christmassy themes. And so, but this morning, we're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. And we're talking about growing up. All right, and so if you've ever known someone who refused to grow up, right, got a little Peter Pan in them maybe, um, a little immature, we say things like act your age, not your shoe size, or, or things like that, unless they've got really big feet. Um, but um, we, we want people to grow up. We value maturity, right? And so, uh, and, and don't be you know pointing or anything like that, and it's not polite, it's people you want to grow up. But spiritually speaking, sometimes that's something we kind of um, neglect in terms of we don't really talk, we don't really um, focus as much on that maybe as we should. If we're we're not careful, even as parents, we can so encourage our children to quote-unquote grow up and mature, we can can miss uh, encouraging them to grow up in the Lord, which is what we're going to talk about this morning is about spiritual maturity. And that is something that gets mentioned from time to time. You'll hear somebody say something like, well, I don't really feel like I'm growing, or how can I grow as a Christian? Or they'll say, you know, I don't really feel like I'm getting fed at church. And so I feel like I need to go somewhere I can grow. It's terms we use. What does that even mean? What does it even mean to grow and to grow as as a Christian? What is spiritual growth? What is that all about? Does it mean to know more? I don't feel like I know as much as I should. Uh, Is it knowing more Bible verses, understanding difficult passages, having all your end times theology worked out to a T? I mean, what, what, what does it mean? Is it doing more? Serving more hours, putting more time in, being on more committees, being on more ministry teams, teaching a Sunday school class, doing all these different things. Is it knowing more? Is it doing more? Is it some combination of that? Well, the truth is, we know you can know a lot about the Bible. You can do a lot in the name of the Lord and not even know Christ, not even have salvation as your possession. And so it's not exactly about knowing more and doing more, although those can be things that can be helpful, not necessarily more, but what you know can help and Things you do can help, but that's not really what spiritual growth is all about. Spiritual growth is quite simply becoming more like Christ. It's, 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 it's being transformed more and more into His likeness. And so, if your knowledge leads there, great. If your doing leads there, great. If they don't, then it's not really aiding in your spiritual growth. And spiritual growth is something that we all need. It is something that we all need to mature in. And it's, it's something we're going to see this morning um, that we're always supposed to be striving for, to grow to become more like Christ, to progress in our spiritual life. We discussed last week that the root cause of Paul's joy in the Lord that he writes with throughout Philippians and he calls them to was his relationship with Christ. He knew Jesus and that transformed everything. And he had left behind a religion of works righteousness uh, for this relationship with Christ. And so he was someone who had trusted Christ and was treasuring Christ above everything else. And this week we're going to see that he wasn't just someone who knew Christ. He was growing in Christ. He was maturing in Christ and realized he had not yet arrived. So look with me at Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 12. Before we read, let's pray together. Father... We're so grateful for the Word of God this morning, and we confess just our dependence on you to open our eyes to understand it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine us to spiritual truth, and and that you would be the teacher this morning, and would speak to our hearts and change our lives, and conform us more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. It's in His name we do ask this. Amen. All right, starting in verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. They're with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So, if there was anyone who could say, I've arrived spiritually, right? If there was someone who had matured enough and grew enough in the faith that they were as much like Jesus as you can be like Jesus in this life, most people would probably agree it would be the Apostle Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament, over half of it. Um, He is the most famous of all the apostles. Um, Nobody would really doubt that he may be, you could argue, the most spiritually mature Christian to have ever lived. And yet here's Paul writing to the Philippians, and it's very clear he does not believe he's arrived. He doesn't think he's tapped out, that he's peaked in terms of spiritual growth. He believes there's, there's further that he can go. There's more maturity. There's more progress he can make in the faith. This is an amazing thing when you sit and think about it. So, what, is this, what do we learn about spiritual growth from Paul here? I think there's three things here that we can learn and we can adapt for ourselves about growing and maturing in Christ. All right. So, first thing here. Spiritual growth requires a continuous pursuit. Spiritual growth requires continuous pursuit. You see that in verses 12 through 16. The key phrase in this section here is press on. He uses it twice. Press on. The Greek word can also be translated pursue or even persecute, which is interesting. And think about it, Paul was someone who persecuted the Christians uh, in his day, um, who relentlessly, he was pursuing them, even when he became a Christian on the road to Damascus, he was pursuing, persecuting Christians. He was pursuing them to have them locked into prison. And so this was someone who pursued, who persecuted other people, other believers, in order to try to prevent them from from sharing the faith and expanding the faith. And now he's someone who is pursuing, not persecuting, but he is pursuing, he's chasing after growth in Christ. And so he's pressing on. He is pursuing. It's, it's an athletic term also uh, that could be used uh, to, to picture a runner just in full force, straining with every muscle, legs and arms going, and every muscle is being used to run as fast, to go as far as he possibly can. That's the imagery we have here when Paul says, I press on. It's a very intense word that he's using that we can miss in our language if we're not careful. So this is not a picture of someone who says, you know, you know, I prayed to receive Christ when I was 8. Or I prayed to receive Christ when I was 16 or, or whatever. And, and then, you know, I just kind of lived my life. You know, he says, I'm pressing on. There's no, there's no room here for just stagnation for a ho-hum Christian life. This is someone who has been so changed in his relationship with the Lord that has radically changed not only the direction his life is going, but the way in which he is pursuing that direction. You understand that? So when we get saved, the direction's new. 
We've turned from sin. We've turned towards Christ. But Paul is also saying, it's not just I'm going in a new direction. I'm actually pursuing something in that direction. I'm not just turned around. I've turned around and now I'm running in the other direction. And that's the picture that we have here. You see, here's the thing about this continuous pursuit that Paul's in. The, the, the key thing here is that Paul understood his condition. The first thing he understood was he was not there yet. He says, I've not already obtained. I'm not already made perfect. And So what's he talking about when he says, I haven't already obtained it, or I haven't already been made perfect? Well, he's referring back to the passage we looked at last week. And in verse 11 there, he talks about wanting to attain the resurrection of the dead. So when he says, I haven't obtained it, that's what he's pointing to. It's that the resurrection of the dead, that believers in Christ Jesus receive glorified bodies, and they have bodies that don't sin, they don't get sick. It's kind of the finality of our salvation in a sense, right? It's the consummation of all these things. And, and, and Paul's looking at that, looking out at that, and he's saying, I haven't obtained that yet. I haven't been made perfect. In other words, I'm still in this body, and I still make mistakes, and I still sin, and I'm not as much like Christ as I could be. I'm kind of being held back in a sense. I'm still struggling and battling with my sin nature. But there's coming a day where that will be over. So Paul humbly understood that he wasn't perfect, right? You see that word there, I'm not perfect. He understood that he still had, he would still make mistakes, that he still failed, that he still sinned. Of all people, the Apostle Paul still sinned. Can you imagine that? Yeah, he still sinned. And here's the thing, you won't pursue what you don't realize that you are lacking in. If you don't realize that you are lacking in something, if you don't realize that you are missing out, if you don't realize that there's further you can go, for instance, in the Christian faith, then you won't pursue it if you think you've already arrived. Before there can be this continuous, persistent pursuit of spiritual growth in Christ's likeness, there needs to be a fundamental understanding that you have a ways to go, that I have a ways to go, that we have a ways to go. But not only that, Paul didn't just understand I'm not there yet. The other thing about his condition he understood was He's not where he used to be. He's got a different position. He, he says, I strive to, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He said, something's happened and changed in my life. Paul wanted to grasp the goal of Christ's likeness because he had been grasped and taken hold of by Christ or apprehended by Christ. On the Damascus Road, Paul had been, had, 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 had his life, the claim staked over it by the Lord Jesus. And he now belonged to Jesus. And because of that, Paul now had a desire to be more and more like Christ. See, our pursuit is driven by a possession. Christ has taken possession of us, and now we want to take possession of his likeness and be more and more like him. Paul was someone who wanted to put off sin so that he could grow in Christ. He, he wanted to put away the old nature and put off his sin nature, and he wanted to be more and more like Christ in his attitudes, in his behaviors, in his character. In every way, he wanted to become more like Christ. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, uh, talking about this text, gave an illustration. And, and let me just read you the quote. This is a great quote by Spurgeon here. He says, A man who is in the sea, in the ocean, taking a plunge deep down under the water, does not feel the weight of the water. But bring him out on the shore and put a great tub of water on his head and see what a weight that is to him. So while a man is in his sin as his element, it is no burden to him. But when he is out of it and under its and no longer under its power, then he feels the then he no longer feels then he feels the weight of it. He grows weary under it and would gladly gladly be rid of every particle of it. You see what he's saying? He's saying when when you are lost in your sin, you're just like a man who's been tossed in the ocean and you don't feel the weight of the water. 
But when Christ pulls you out of your sin and saves you and redeems you, it's just like that man trying to have that tub of water held over his head. Now he feels the weight of it because he's no longer in the element of it. He has been redeemed from it. There's, there's something different about him. His very nature has been changed. And this is Paul, a man who had been delivered and who is now wanting to walk in purity and holiness and Christ's likeness. And he's painfully aware that he is not much, as much like Christ as he could be, but he knows he's not who he once was. He's, he's been apprehended by Christ. And so what he's basically saying is, the very reason Christ took hold of me, I'm now pursuing achieving that. He, he, he took hold of me to not just keep me from going to hell, but to make me like himself. To, to conform me to his image. And Romans 8 says this, right? It's the whole deal about God's predestining and God's saving and calling, it all leads to ultimately seeing people conform to the image of his son, Romans 8 tells us. And Paul understood that's why Christ apprehended me. That's why he took hold of me. And so therefore I'm pursuing that goal. Now the other thing about Paul's pursuit is you see that he was focused and he avoided distractions. He says, I'm forgetting what lies behind straining forward to what lies ahead. He wouldn't be distracted. He was focused. And it, it's important that we get, get, get the gravity of this because we, we tend to put an urgency on coming to Christ, but we don't tend to put an urgency on growing in Christ. You notice that? When we think about someone that needs the Lord, we think, you know, so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there is an urgency there. There's the danger of a Christless eternity. There's the danger of having to give an account for your sins and being judged for your sins and experiencing God's wrath for your sins. There's a danger there, so there's an urgency. But then we come to Christ, and it's like the urgency's been lifted, but you don't see an urgency lifted from Paul. It's just it's changed. The urgency's no longer about, I'm going to go to hell. The urgency's like, I want to pursue and become more like Christ. And he's, he's, there's a focus there. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. And so there's a lot on the line because we're supposed to, we, it's, it's the very reason we were saved for. We weren't just saved to miss hell and gain heaven. We were saved to pursue Christ and to become more like Him. Last night I was watching the, um, uh, the Michigan State-Iowa game, right? And there was this great drive, and I came in kind of late on it, and I turned it over there, and, and Michigan State the, is driven all the way down. They're like at the five-yard line, and there's like two and a half minutes or something to go in the game, two minutes or something to go in the game. And it's just the longest two minutes in history, right? Of them just pounding away and pounding away. And finally, they get it up there, and they've got the ball on like the one-yard line or maybe even inside that. And there's just seconds left, like 30 seconds left in the game. And can you imagine if their quarterback, I mean, there's their chance at a college football playoff, their Big Ten championships all on the line. If he walks up there, he's driven them all the way down here, and he gets right up to the goal line, and then he just decides to like go get a hot dog, you know? He says, hey, I'm just going to sit this play out. You can't imagine that, right? You're like, there's a lot on the line. It would be foolish to be distracted by something so silly with so much on the line. And what I want you to understand is Paul realizes that there are distractions out there that could pull him away from his focus of becoming more like Christ. So he realizes, I've got to actively choose to forget what lies behind me and strain forward towards what lies ahead. Now, here's some things that can distract you. Here's some hot dogs out there, right, that can distract you. The first one is satisfaction. And we see that Paul's already avoided that one. He says, I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. So he's not satisfied. We talked about there was humility in that. But there's also a sense of a holy dissatisfaction with where he's at in terms of spiritual progress. See, the goal of the Christian life and spiritual maturity and growth is not to attend church more regularly. That's a good thing. 
It's not to be in a small group more faithfully, which is a good thing. It's not to be more regular about sharing the gospel, which is a good thing. To give more faithfully, which is a good thing. To serve more and be more in ministries. To read your Bible more, to go to church more, to pray more. Do all those things. All those things are great. But the goal is to be like Christ. And see, here's the problem. When we're satisfied with where we're at, it shows something. You got the wrong goal. Right? You set the bar way too low. When we're satisfied and we think, I've just grown as much as I can, and this is just, you know, I'm just kind of waiting to die, you know, I'm, hey, I've, I'm where I'm supposed to be spiritually. I'm not committing any of the Big Ten on a regular basis, and so I'm just kind of passing time, doing life. No, no, no. Paul had a holy dissatisfaction. He was not satisfied with where he was at. Because his goal wasn't just to be a well-known apostle that wrote lots of scriptures. His goal was to be like Jesus in every way. And he knew that he wasn't that. And so he still had a ways to go. Beware of satisfaction, being satisfied with where you are spiritually. Another distraction or a derailment to our spiritual growth and our pursuit of Christ is our past. Paul says, I'm forgetting things that were lying behind me, that lie behind me. There's, there's a positive and a negative to this. There's past sins, right, that you can be derailed by. If you focus on the sins of your past, you know, you need to deal with your sin, repent of your sin, biblically deal with it, and whoever you need to deal with it over to get past it. But once you've biblically repented and dealt with your sin, it needs to stay in the past. And be sure of this, Satan can and will use guilt and shame from your past sins to derail you in your spiritual progress today. Are there consequences for sin? Absolutely. Are there consequences that can stay with us the rest of this lot, the rest of our life? You better believe it. Should it be a derailment or a distraction from your spiritual growth and pursuing Christ likeness? Absolutely not. God is not holding our. Well, once we've dealt with our sin, He's not up there holding our past over us and and and, and trying. He don't want us to be distracted by that. He wants us to to forget what lies in the past and to pursue forward. Towards what's ahead, towards Christ's likeness. You can't pursue Christ's likeness while you still sit back in guilt and shame, thinking how unworthy you are to grow and pursue spiritual maturity. Can't do it. Deal with you've got to forget what lies behind. But there's also a success side of that, not just your sins. There's spiritual success that you have to worry about too. See, Paul was someone who... He had the resume, remember? We talked about that before he came to Christ. He had the resume. And then he comes to Christ and he put together another pretty good resume. I mean, after Jesus has already ascended into heaven, he meets Paul on the road to Damascus to make him an apostle. Nobody, that didn't happen to anybody else. He, he had his spiritual highlights, so to speak, that he could have lived in. Meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, becoming one of the apostles, planning Tons of churches, discipling people in the faith, being persecuted, being beaten and stoned and probably snake-bitten, and yet God sparing him and protecting him. I mean, he had experienced mountaintops and valleys and mountaintops and valleys and experienced the tangible hand of God in his life through those valleys and raising him back up to those mountaintops. If there's anybody that can look back at their Christian life and go, you know what, I've just had so much success, you know, and just kind of be satisfied, it was Paul. We've got to beware of coasting off our past success or even our past spiritual growth. What happens when you coast? You slow down unless you're going downhill. And if anybody feels like you're living the Christian life downhill, man, I want to talk to you and get, to get some of what you have. <laughs> 
It's not downhill, is it? If you've been saved very long, you know that. It's uphill most of the time. Fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit there pushing us along and pulling us along. But life doesn't get easier because you come to know Jesus. Sometimes, actually, it can get harder. And Paul understood that he couldn't live off the past success. He understood he couldn't coast because when you coast, you slow down. And when you slow down, at some point, you stop. So we can't coast. Beware of coasting. The other thing we see, the other hindrance is apathy and just laziness. Paul says, I'm not just forgetting what lies behind, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. There's that picture of just pressing on, every muscle going, straining forward. You think about the runner who's throwing his nose forward, trying to get across the finish line before anybody else does. That's kind of the picture we have here. This is a graphic, athletic picture. No room for apathy, no room for laziness. This is like Rocky, right? The old Rocky movies where he's running up and down in Philadelphia, running up and down the, the steps. He's in the meat market, punching the raw meat, right? I mean, he's training. He's focused. He's ready to take somebody down. Paul's saying, I'm focused. There's, I'm not apathetic about this. I'm not lazy about this. I am straining forward. There is real work involved. You know, apathetic runners aren't real good runners. And apathetic Christians don't make real good Christians. If you're an apathetic runner, there's going to be a lot of days when you just don't run. When you walk. That, I am an apathetic. I'm not, I can't even call myself an apathetic runner. I'm just, I don't like to run, right? And so if I decided today, this afternoon, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run, I can promise you I'll run, but I'll walk a lot too. Because I'm very apathetic in my view of running. I need to get less apathetic of that probably. Some people love to run, right? And they enjoy to run. And so they go out and they run and they run and they run and they run 10 miles a day and they're up at 4 a.m. and they're running and running. They're like Forrest Gump. I mean, they're going. God bless you for that. They're not apathetic about running. They love to run. Paul says, I'm not apathetic. Man, I, am, I love Jesus. I want to be made more like Jesus. I want my character to change more. I realize I've still got attitudes that need to be changed. I realize I still think things that I shouldn't think. I realize I still say things that I shouldn't say. And so, you know what? I'm straining forward to lay that stuff off and to pursue becoming more like Jesus. I'm not apathetic about this, and I'm not lazy about it. Because he's straining. He's working. It's a picture People that don't read their Bible. People that don't pray. People that don't do the simple things like regularly attend church and get involved in Christian community. Don't grow like they should. They don't. See, all those things aren't the point. But they are a means to an end. But they're just the means. The problem is not that you do those things. The problem is when you make those things the goal. So it's not that we shouldn't do those things. It's that we shouldn't grade ourselves on that scale. The question is, am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I growing and maturing in Christ? And God has given you things to help you pursue that. Prayer helps with that. Reading the Word helps with that. Being in Christian community helps with that. All these things help with that. Serving helps with that. Jesus came to serve, right? He wants us to be servants. So I believe that servant in serving is a way that helps us grow and mature spiritually. All these things are, are means to the end, and we don't apply them, and we don't read the Word, and we don't pray, and we don't actively pursue spiritual growth. We're just being spiritually lazy. We're lazy. We're couch potatoes. Right? We're like the guy that doesn't run and just sits on the couch. And he's saying, listen, there's no place for spiritual laziness. Now, Paul also understood that there, there was a goal. Right, he says, I'm go what is he straining toward? The goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a goal, there's a prize, there is something he is chasing with all of his might. He is purposely trying with all of his heart to achieve 
that, fi- that finality or ultimately becoming like Christ. Something that he couldn't even achieve in this life. You understand that? Uh, this text goes against this idea of perfectionism, that somehow that you can grow mature enough in this life that you don't sin anymore, that there's no place for you. Some people believe that. Some people believe that in this life you can reach a place where you no longer sin. I haven't reached that place. I mean, if you have, let's talk. But that this smacks totally against that. He's saying, listen, listen, that doesn't happen. He's saying, I'm not there yet. So I'm pursuing the goal. The goal's out there. But he did have a goal in mind. He was focused on the goal. And see, godly people have a deep desire for spiritual progress, for achieving the goal. They are goal-oriented, and the goal is to become more like Christ. They're not satisfied. They're not distracted by the past. They're not lazy and apathetic. They look to the goal, and they strain, they press, because they want the prize that they've been called to, and they're not going to quit before they get the goal. They're not going to go sit down until they get the goal. Chris, can you imagine... If on my wedding day with Christy, if I would have, after we had been dating, and after we had gotten engaged, and after we had planned a wedding, and then we get to the wedding day, and right, all the things that have happened, all the people are there, all the money is spent, and everything's together, and right before we walk up to the altar, I walk over to Christy, and I say, hey, how about we just stay engaged, and I'm really enjoying planning this wedding, and let's just do that indefinitely. Let's just plan a wedding indefinitely, stay engaged indefinitely, Why get married, right? That would look foolish. That's the goal, right? That's the whole point of the dating and the engagement and the wedding was the marriage. In the same way, it's foolish when we take our eyes off the goal, which is Christ's likeness, and we stop pursuing and we start chasing after and we, and we just kind of go sit on the bench. We're missing the whole point. We've left before the end of the game. Paul says, let those who are mature think this way. You know what Paul's saying? Part of spiritual maturity is understanding you're not fully spiritual and mature. He uses the same Greek word here that's translated mature that he used earlier when he said perfect. It's, it's a different version of it, but it's the same root word. And in one, they translate it perfect. and one, they translate it mature. Because that's what he's saying. He's saying part, part of getting to where you need to be is understanding you're not where you need to be. And he says, if you're in anything you think differently, the Lord will reveal that to you. He's confident that, hey, the Lord's going to reveal to you that you're not where you need to be spiritually and that there's things you can do to progress in the faith. And I'm just going to trust the Lord on that. And we know that he does. Spiritually immature people think that they're doing great if they just simply haven't committed one or two of what they view as really big bad sins in their mind. The people who are maturing in Christ understand that there are a myriad of ways that they fall short and attitude, and action. And they're constantly looking to Christ and seeking growth in His life. Now, two more quick things. Observations. Number two. That was about pursuing. It's a continuous pursuit, spiritual growth. Number two. Spiritual growth requires examples and community. It happens in community, and we need examples. So look at what he says in verse 17 there. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's just laid out for them how he pursues spiritual growth and he says, now you do likewise. Paul does this. Man, he has no problem looking at people and saying, hey, you do what I do. That is discipleship, by the way. That's what it means to disciple someone is not just to give them some information but to say, here, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul says, here, follow me as I follow Christ. And then he's talking a lot in verses 20 and 21, 17 through 21. It's a very communal picture. 
He says, we are awaiting a Savior. We are looking forward to Christ. He says, you look at the examples that you have among you and look out for these examples. And he's talking to this community of faith and he's saying there are examples to look at and there are examples to avoid. And together we are pursuing and looking for the return of Christ. See, we need spiritual examples. That's why he says, not only look to me, but he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says, I realize I'm not there. I'm in, I'm in jail in Philippi. But you know, there's a guy named Epaphroditus that I'm sending back to you that I've told you he's a good example. There are other people there, right? That's one of the reasons we have elders or pastors and deacons and, and church leadership. That's one of the roles is to live as an example. But everybody, every Christian is ultimately called to live as an example. Nobody gets to just kind of wave their hand and say, I'm not going to live as an example. We need people. New Christians need people. Maturing Christians need people. We all need people. I need people. We need people to look at and kind of go, wow. If I could be a little bit more like them, I could be a little bit more like Jesus. We need that in our lives. Paul understood that. Children learn by imitating, don't they? Right? Cannon loves to imitate. He likes to go, he'll go put our shoes on, he'll go put our hat on, he gets his cup and his spoon and he pretends he's cooking. You know, he likes to, he's imitate, he's learn. that's what children do. They're learning about life, learning how to do things, and they, they imitate. Beware, they imitate. Yeah. And that's how we learn and how we grow too. A lot of Christian growth is about, some of you can honestly look back and say, the reason I started reading my Bible was because so-and-so always read their Bible. Mama always read her Bible, and she was a godly person, so I started reading my Bible, right? Or some, or some preacher, or some Sunday school teacher, or some youth director, or whatever, taught me that I needed to start reading my Bible, and they read their... Yeah, I mean, we, we need examples. Some of you can look at your marriages, and you can say, you know, there are things that we do in our marriage because we saw my parents do it in their marriage, or we saw these people do it in their marriage. And things you do with your finances, your generosity, you saw it in someone else, and it spurred it on you. We need examples. That's part of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. But there's also, you need to understand, there's, there's negative examples out there. And Paul addresses that. There are dangerous threats to the community of faith. He calls these people enemies of the cross. Beware of these people, he says. He says, I warn you with tears. He, he weeps as he writes this. As he thinks the single best example of the love of God and the history of the universe is Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And Paul says, there is a group of people that are enemies of that. An intense picture. Who are these people? Well, commentators, theologians, debate. There's really only a few options. One option, and to me the most likely option, is that it's the Judaizers, which is the group that we talked about last week. This was a group of people that believed it wasn't enough to just trust Jesus. You also needed to be circumcised, and you needed to obey some Old Testament law. And in a sense, you needed to be Jewish to be Christian. And they had added to salvation. And when you add to the requirements of salvation, you nullify salvation. Jesus plus doesn't save. Jesus saves. And so this group of people, I believe, he is, is one of the groups that's very possible and maybe even likely that that's the group he's addressing when he says they're enemies of the cross because it seems like this is a group of people that what they're doing is actually actively against everything the cross stands for. It's not just ho-hum lost people out there that's just minding their own business. These are people that the things they're doing is actually standing against the cross. And that would make sense with this group. It also could be a group of what they call, uh, we might have used this word here before, antinomians. Uh, libertines is another word we use for it. This is a group of people that, you know, it's kind of like this. You know, oh, just, just believe in Jesus and live however you want to. You know what I'm saying? You're free. 
You're free. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Live how you want to. You're free. It's all a grace, man. And just go out and just live however you want to. And the Bible addresses that kind of heresy as well. That lawlessness. And it could be that he's addressing that. That was something that was very predominant in that day. Or it could be actually, as one commentator I read pointed out, a combination of the two. Because see, sometimes we fail to forget that just because somebody is very legalistic doesn't mean that they don't also live very loosely. Because legalism cannot and will not constrain the flesh. In fact, many times it empowers the flesh. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle is not a means to spiritual victory. But it can be a means to just rile, because you're living in the flesh and you're only one step away from being consumed with the flesh. And so it is possible that these Judaizers had also given themselves into some sort of lawless deeds in some way. So we, we can't be certain, but I tend to lean towards the Judaizers. But, but it, listen to how he breaks them. He says their, their end is destruction. In other words, they're headed for hell. He's just very plainly, that's what he's talking about. Saying they're lost. He said their God is their belly. If it's the Judaizers he's speaking of, this would speak to the uh, ceremonial, uh, the eating and what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. And they're just so obsessed about that, making sure they get to heaven by eating all the right foods, right? Their God is their belly. If he's talking more to the lawless group, he's, it, it would be a euphemism here more for their flesh and for being given to the things of the flesh, sexual sin and just immorality and just being unconstrained in the way they live their life. They glory in their shame. In other words, the thing they should be ashamed of, they boast in. Christians, he said last week, glory in the Christ Jesus. These people, or maybe like Paul used to be, they're glorying in their self-righteousness, as the Judaizers were. Or they boasted in their sin as those antinomians did. But then he says, he says this, he says, their mind, with their minds set on earthly things. That, that's really kind of what everything drives to, is that they're all about here. And their mind is set on the here and now. They're all about the earthly things. All their treasure is in this world. And he's warning them, we need true examples, and we need to follow real examples of godliness and spiritual growth because there are phonies out there. There are fakes. There are people that can even infiltrate into the community who can talk a good game, but in the end of the day, everything they stand for is anti-gospel, that when they would lead you away from Christ. And so we need one another. We need one another as an example as we live the Christian life together and pursue spiritual growth together in Christ's likeness. He says in verse 20, he says, they're... They're looking at earthly things, but he says, our citizenship is in heaven. There's a contrast. He said, we're not like them. Our citizenship's in heaven. They're all about their minds on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, it's supposed to be different. He said, there's supposed to be a stark contrast. These people should stand out to you because all their chips are in this life and we've put all of our chips in the next one. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. We're the people of God. We're the people of heaven. Now, the Philippians, this would have meant a lot to them. Because as we said at the beginning of this series, Philippi was a Roman colony. And so even though they weren't in Rome, they were of Rome. They were under the authority of Caesar. They were, they were under Roman rule and they had an allegiance to Rome and an allegiance to Caesar. And he's saying, listen, I know you're not in heaven physically, but you're a citizen of heaven. You, the king of heaven is the emperor, is the ruler, is the king over you. And you have an allegiance to the God of heaven even when you're not there in heaven. You are a citizen of heaven first and foremost. And that outranks being a citizen of Rome. That's what he's alluding to here. 
our citizenship is there. And he says, and from it, we await a savior. That Greek word await carries the idea of eagerness. It's, it's, it's waiting eagerly. Right? It's, it's not waiting in the dentist's lobby. That's not the kind of waiting it is. It's, it's, it's on the edge of your seat. Awaiting, eagerly expecting. Expecting what? A, save, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true King. The, the Lord, the exalted one. We, we await Him, He says. And He says He's going to come, He's going to return. And he's going to what? He will transform our lowly body. That word transform just means to change. He's going to, he's going to change this body and make it like His glorious body. That's that when we put off death, we put off sickness, we put off sin. We, none of those things will be anymore and we will be in a body that doesn't get sick. And we'll be in a body that doesn't sin and that doesn't suffer. We will be radically transformed. And even those who have died in Christ, the Bible says, right? They will go before us and they will receive their resurrected, their glorified bodies. And that's the transformation he's looking to. And he's saying, listen, Caesar reigns over Rome and he has power, right, to make people submit to his authority. But he says, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in heaven and he has power, he has authority to make everything submit to him. And it's by that power and by that authority, the one that he makes every knee bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, it's by that power that he is going to transform you. And you are going to achieve Christ's likeness. It will happen. As surely as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, you will ultimately reach Christ's likeness. Certainly. Because it's not dependent on your power. It's not dependent on your will to transform. It's not dependent on how many quiet times you had this week. It's dependent upon the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who we await from heaven, who will see to it that we achieve spiritual growth. A big part of spiritual growth is keeping our eyes on Christ and awaiting His return. Not getting lulled to sleep or led astray by the world. In remembering that we will win the prize. Christ will return and we are to eagerly await our Savior. And to strive for His likeness in the meantime. That's why we're a community of people that together, He says, we, us, ourselves, we are looking for the return of Christ. We do, in community, we're we're a group of people that have gathered this morning at Sunday at 1045. And the reason we meet is because we believe a Savior came and a Savior will return. Without the return, there's no reason for us to meet. We meet in expectation. We meet because it could be today, it could be tomorrow. We don't know when it's going to be, but we believe He will return. There's expectation when we gather. There's expectation when we meet as the church. There's expectation as we go about our life. Every 4th of July, 5th of July, here in Baldwin Park, we do a big fireworks show. Right? If you've never been to it, it's really incredible. It's a great fireworks show. And there'll be like 15,000 people or something like that all over, I mean, just everywhere. And so we had a booth there this year, and then we went and put our stuff away before the fireworks started. And me and my family, we, we actually watched it just across the street from our parking lot, away from all the hubbub of all the crazy stuff that's going on. You know, you've got bounce houses and fun and food everywhere and, and tents set up everywhere. All that's downtown in the village center. And out here, there's, you know, not a lot going on, but there's just people. And we're all gathered together. But it, all around Lake Baldwin, there's like 15,000 people that hang out for hours. They start getting there way early because they don't do the fireworks till like 9. So like 4 or 5 o'clock, people are getting there. And they wait and wait and wait for hours. And they hang out and have fun. And the kids play and they eat stuff that they shouldn't eat. And we, and we sit around the lake, sit running around the lake. And, and we just wait because we're 
expecting something. The, it's going to get dark and there's going to be a show. The fireworks are going to happen. And so we're, we're waiting in, in, in expectation. And we, and we see we can, we can illustrate that with all sorts of things in life. And the point is this. We need to remember that when we come together and we meet, we're not awaiting noon. We're not awaiting lunch. We're really awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, we meet with the expectation of, Lord willing, we're going to come back next week and we're going to strive to grow in His likeness and we're going to work and we're going to serve, but expecting and awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just sitting around. There's an expectation. There's an eagerness. The third thing about spiritual growth that we see from this passage is spiritual growth requires perseverance. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, my brothers whom I love and long for. I, mean, he, I, I long to be with you. I, I love you. He calls them his jo- my joy and my crown. Talking about just the joy he receives, the pride he has in their spiritual progress. He is completely invested in this church. And he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He said, in light of all this, you need to stand firm. You need to persevere. You need to stand your ground against every attack and everything that comes your way. A big part of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is just simply persevering. And a lot of everything about spiritual pursuit, the examples that he's given, the warning of the false teachers, he's saying, stand firm. You know, Jesus taught that true disciples stand firm. They persevere. They remain. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 20 through 23. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He's saying there's a person who hears the gospel, who receives it with joy, who's all excited about it. But then tribulation, hard times, and persecution comes his way, and he just walks away. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This one may take even longer. It's, just, it's, it's maybe the scariest of all. It's this slow choking away of what was sown in their life. So there's no fruit. He says, it's for what was sown on good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. It's, in both those situations, Jesus is given the types of soil that the gospel falls on. And he's saying, listen, there's a couple of the examples here are people that at the end of the day, they just didn't stand firm. One was led astray by the ways of the world and one fell away because of suffering and persecution. But only one ultimately bore fruit and it was the one that, that remained. It was the one that remained. And the key here is he says, stand firm in the Lord. In the Lord. We don't stand in our power or our accomplishments. Or lack of failure, we stand in Christ. We rely on Christ. He is the one we're committed to. He, we've been apprehended by Him. See, in, our, in your spiritual journey, you're going to encounter suffering. Paul's saying, stand firm. You're going to encounter incredible temptation. And Paul is saying, stand firm. People are going to fail you. Examples are going to fail you. And Paul is saying, Stand firm. And you're going to go through dry seasons and difficult seasons where you think, does God even hear me? Is God even speaking to me anymore? And Paul is saying, stand firm, remain. Because many times when you stand firm in the Lord through the most difficult seasons of your life, those will, many times God will use them as the means to some of the greatest growth in your life. And there are people around this room that can testify to that this morning. 
whether it was health things, relational things, there are things that you go through in life that sometimes God uses those very things to help grow and mature you in ways that he never, that you never could have imagined. You don't really understand it when you're going through it. Sometimes you're looking back on it years later. The key is stand firm. 